In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary, involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Welcome back, folks. This is Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You're back on the Progressive Radio Network. Today's Monday, August 22nd. And we have nothing in particular to talk to you about today. There's plenty, of course, happening, as there always is. But, you know, some days I come in, a studio is set up. And I look through the news headlines as I usually do. This weekend, however, I spent very little time with the news. And I think that's really healthy to do sometimes. So for those of you out there who maybe consider yourselves political junkies, news junkies, sometimes it's good to just take a break. Sometimes it's good to walk away from the computer Set the newspaper down for those who still read newspapers. I probably shouldn't say set the newspaper down since hardly anyone reads newspapers anymore. And that's a whole other thing. You know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I hear people all the time saying, oh my God, no one reads the paper anymore. Well, there's also a good reason why no one reads the newspaper anymore. That's because most of what's in the newspaper is complete and utter bullshit. It's nonsense. Nobody wants to read that kind of crap, especially in the local papers. I mean, the local papers are beyond useless. Wake up in small-town America anywhere in the United States, anywhere, even the most progressive areas. You know, so let's, if you want to call them that, so if you want to, you know, maybe a state or an area like Vermont and Burlington, or Northern California, say Arcata is a good example. There's still nothing really interesting going on, in my opinion, at least with the local newspaper. So, of course, the local newspaper in Arcata in Burlington will be slightly different than the local newspaper in Indiana or Mississippi. But still not too much... In the way of investigative journalism, there's no one breaking any major stories about the way power and politics work in these areas. And of course, we could say the same thing about the major newspapers, which I would argue because of their larger budget or budgets and, you know, the capacity that they have because of those budgets. It's the reason why they're able to produce more useful information, useful stories, investigative reports, as opposed to the local stories. But they're not that much better. You think of something like the New York Times. I mean, what exactly has the New York Times been right about? New York Times is almost always wrong. Wrong about terrorism. 
wrong about Syria. They're wrong about Iraq, wrong about Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Bosnia, Kosovo, Palestine, Pakistan, Iran, ramping up tensions with China, ramping up tensions with Russia, wrong about what's happening in the Ukraine, wrong about what's happening in Crimea. And we still, you know, people still cite these sources as being the quote-unquote credible source. I, I mean, I found myself doing this also. Where, you, where I'll be writing a story or writing an essay and I'll cite stories from the Washington Post or the New York Times just because there is a certain level of credibility, at least in the... I don't think it's the public's eyes, actually. What would I say? Maybe it's the coordinator class, as Michael Albert calls it. I've heard other people call it the, the uh, professional class. So maybe among the petty bourgeois, the New York Times or the Washington Post is credible, but I think the average person sort of gets it. They at least, I think most people at least understand that most of what they are seeing, hearing, or reading from the mainstream press is total garbage. I think most people know that. Yet, say at the university level, and let's say in the more advanced fields within that university, so let's say people who are on track to get their master's degree or their doctorate. As people have pointed out, I'm not obviously the first person to say this, but I think it still holds true, maybe holds true even more so today than it had in the past. Namely, the fact that the people who are that highly educated are often those who admire and respect venues such as the Washington Post or the New York Times or NPR radio or PBS as Dar Jamail calls it the National Pentagon Radio and this is what a lot of people are stuck with when it comes to the mainstream media and you're talking about reading newspapers, I don't even know how we got on that subject. We were talking about newspapers, or I was talking about newspapers, and anyway, you get the point. There's, there's a whole uproar in the professional journalistic class about the fact that people no longer read newspapers. And again, as I said, when the show started, I think you know, if newspapers printed interesting articles, worthwhile articles, critical, investigative reports and stories, people would most likely read them. When 
the best writing you can find in most newspapers is in the sports section. And when the sports section is bigger, <laughs> more detailed, more original stories. I mean, you look at, say, in a place like Northwest Indiana or Southwest Michigan, the only stories that are of any worth usually are uh, wire stories. You think about that. Now, a lot of this is a result of the Telecommunication Act that Bill Clinton signed, what was this, back in 97 or 98? Somebody can check me on that and tell me I'm wrong. But I know it's either 97 or 98. Well, let's put three out there. It might be 96, 97, or 98. I want to say it's 97 or 98. But in any case, allowing media to outsource, to consolidate, where now we have, I think, five or six major conglomerates that own virtually everything people read, see, or hear. And that's not uh, hyperbolic. This is the actual reality. We've talked about that on previous programs. Maybe we should have, you know, we've had my friend Kim Sipes on here who teaches many interesting classes as a professor over at Purdue University Northwest. We should have him on, I think one of his more interesting classes, courses, I guess is the proper term in university, but I think one of the more interesting ones is on the media. It's media consolidation, horizontal integration, vertical integration. Some people use those terms in different ways. Nonetheless, the way that I could probably, I'm, my, I'll probably be wrong about this, but it doesn't really matter. It's actually more for conceptual purposes, but the vertical integration would be CBS owning, or I'm sorry, uh, General Electric owning NBC, but also owning different magazines, radio stations, etc. And then the horizontal integration would be General Electric owning other companies that are similar to that. You know, so this would be someone owning 50 TV channels and expanding or owning a couple TV channels and expanding that to 50 TV channels and then deciding, you know, TV isn't enough. I want to expand. I want to start a publishing company. And this is how this works. I should, oh man, I don't know where, if the book is here in the studio or not, but I would love to pull up a, there's a part from a, let's see here. I might be able to find it. I don't usually move around too much, so hopefully this isn't uh, too distracting for people. But there's a, I, it's from Kim's class, actually. It is uh, a media book. Man, I don't, I, I wish I, I had pulled it out ahead of time. But nonetheless, there's a part in the book that discusses this integration and the way it works. So, for instance, the company... Oh, here it is. I knew I had it somewhere. One second here. All right. Media Society is the name of it. I knew it. I knew I was going to be able to find this. So you should check out this book, too, by the way. And again, this is, you know, sparking people's interest, thinking about 
how these different institutions and systems in our society work. I am not one to insist that people should have a formal education. I don't think it's the most important thing. However, I do think that people learn extremely valuable skills through formalized education, particularly secondary education, and particularly in the humanities, social science departments and those disciplines. People learn a lot, learn how to critically think, they learn how to read critically, they learn how to process information, how to write their thoughts, how to express themselves. And this is important stuff. And so, you know, and they're also exposed to different ideas, big ideas, ideas they maybe wouldn't have been exposed to if they had not taken, uh, say, a couple college courses or even if it's a few years, you know, even if it's not getting your degree, I think the social aspect is also very interesting. Some would argue, my friend Kim would be one, he would argue that the social aspect of college is actually the most important. The ability to sit down in a room filled with dozens and dozens of people who think differently, whether that be fundamentally different or somewhat differently than you do, and have critical and important conversations with them. That's an important skill. That's an important thing that people learn, a skill that people learn when they uh, go to school. So anyway, this book's a little dated. This was written in, when was this published? 2003. Nonetheless, there's probably new editions, and you will get the point. The name of the book is Media Society, Industries, Images, and Audiences by David Crutu and William Hoynes, the third edition. That's Media Society, Industries, Images, and Audiences, David Crutu, or Crutau, and William Hoynes. Okay, so they have... A section in here where they're talking about the anatomy of a media conglomerate, as they call it, conglomeration and integration. So, constant quoting from Crutoe and Hoynes concentration of media ownership means that fewer corporations own the media. At the same time that concentration of ownership has been occurring, conglomeration has also been taking place. That is, media companies have become part of much larger corporations which own a collection of other companies that may operate in highly diverse business areas. Much as in other industries, the largest media companies are growing in size and reach as they purchase or merge with their competitors. In the United States, media properties are among the most attractive properties to both potential investors and buyers, as shown by AOL's merger with Time Warner. Viacom's purchase of CBS and Vivendi's acquisitions of Seagram Universal and USA Networks, the process of conglomeration continues at a rapid pace. Media, 
in both news and entertainment forms, have become a key segment of the American economy. The media industry is producing high visibility, high profits, and a major item for export to other countries. Concentration has affected the relationship between various media organizations within a single conglomerate. So this is what we were talking about. Economic analysts have long used the terms horizontal integration and vertical integration to describe two types of ownership concentration in any industry. In the media industry, vertical integration refers to the process by which one owner acquires all aspects of production and distribution of a single type of a media product. For example, a movie company might integrate vertically by acquiring talent agencies, production studios, theater change, chains, video cassette manufacturing plants, you can see this is a little bit dated, and a chain of video rental stores. The company could then better control the entire process of creating, producing, marketing, and distributing movies. Similarly, a book publisher might integrate vertically by acquiring paper mills, printing facilities, book binderies, a trucking firm, and a chain of bookstores. Horizontal integration refers to the process by which one media company buys different kinds of media, concentrating ownership across different types of media rather than up and down through one industry. In horizontal integration, media conglomerates assemble large portfolios of magazines, television stations, book publishers, record labels, and so on, so they mutually support one another's operations. Now, here's a real-world example, folks, that I want you to pay attention to because this is actually why I picked up the book. I wasn't going to read you all of that information, but I think people probably will learn a lot from this. So back to Cruteau and Hoyne's quote. For example, when Warner Brothers released the 2001 film Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, its parent company, AOL Time Warner, pursued an elaborate multimedia strategy to cash in on the Harry Potter franchise. AOL's online services provided links to various Harry Potter web pages, including sites for the purchasing the Harry Potter merchandise that AOL sells. The company's movie information site, MoviePhone, promoted and sold tickets to the film, while company magazines such as Time, People, and Entertainment Weekly featured prominent Harry Potter stories. In addition, AOL Time Warner used its cable systems and cable networks for massive promotion of the film. And the company-owned Warner Music Group released the Harry Potter soundtrack. Similarly, when Viacom's Paramount Pictures released the 1988 or 1998 film The Rugrats Movie, it was promoted heavily on the company's Nickelodeon cable channel, home of the Rugrats twice-daily cartoon and in Viacom's chain of blockbuster video stores. The video is also distributed by Viacom's Paramount Home Video. In another example, Disney has turned its sports cable channel ESPN into a multimedia cross-promotional vehicle, developing an ESPN radio network, an ESPN uh, news service program, an ESPN store, an ESPN magazine, and an ESPN sports bar all working together to promote Disney's ESPN products. 
this kind of opportunity for cross-promotion is one of the driving forces behind the growth of horizontally integrated media companies. So, to recap what I'm talking about here, companies will own... So, and this is, see, this is interesting too because some people, I don't even know what the technical term is, but, you know, this, these capitalist arguments are insane. They're totally insane. There is no, I mean, if you want to be creative, you tell me how many people can go out and try and start a book publishing company and compete with these people. They can't. You can't. Now, maybe some would argue, well, you keep, Maybe you shouldn't try and compete with these people. Of course. Okay. I'm saying, but within this so-called capitalist economy that we live in, this isn't considered a monopoly because there's technically other companies own these other processes. And they're under different names. But essentially, that's what we're talking about, right? I mean, if we're talking about a company like AOL, Time Warner, and Warner Brothers owns a video or owns a movie, and then the production studio is owned by that same company, and then the same company owns radio stations that will promote that movie, and they also own magazines that will promote that movie, and they also own cable TV channels that will promote that movie, and they also own newspapers that will promote that movie. Someone tell me where in that process there is a true sort of uh, competitive nature taking place between, what, different competitive economic entities? Of course not. It's rigged. It's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> and this is how, this is how culture is uh, produced here in the United States and increasingly around the world. And this is contradictory to what the, co the common dominant narrative is from the capitalists who constantly argue and the liberals who constantly argue, well, it's individual choices. You know, you just, people just make individual choices and, you know, it's supply and demand. Um, you know, if people want it, they're going to get it. Or maybe, just maybe, the more reasonable explanation is if you ram things down the throats of people who are often referred to as consumers. Pay attention to that, by the way. You're not a quote-unquote person to those who are in power. And if you think they see you as a person, you need to snap out of it. Nonetheless, I could go off on a tangent about that as well, but nonetheless being referred to as consumers, yes, of course, that's sick enough, but having these products constantly rammed down our throats and then taking into account the fact that most Americans are living either paycheck to paycheck or are poor working class people who have limited options, and that's everything from the kind of food they consume to the kind of stores people will shop at including places like Walmart and so on. Some people just don't have a choice. And then when it comes to entertainment, unless, you know, I have a friend, my friend Angry Johnny, who 
for years has turned me on to not only great music, but all kinds of other, you know, great movies, great literature, great, good philosophers to read. But he's a special kind of person. I mean, this is someone who will spend hours of their time searching, digging for new music, exposing themselves to new movies, keeping up with what's being released, what's new, what's not, who it's influenced by, where it comes from. So I'm lucky, lucky to have a friend like that. But most people are going to consume what they're, what they're given, and not only what they're given, but what sort of rammed down their throats, Harry Potter being a great example. So it's not as though people demanded more and more Harry Potter, like people were chomping at the bit so they could buy another $45 backpack for their kid who wants a Harry Potter backpack and Harry Potter socks and Harry Potter head ties or bow bands or whatever the hell people use. I don't know what, the, I don't have children, so I don't know what, they, what exactly kids put in their hair, bows, bands, or whatever the hell it is. But I've seen Harry Potter everything. There's Harry Potter underwear, Harry Potter pajamas, Harry Potter uh, posters, uh, toys. It's ridiculous. It's So they have a chart in, in here, Crouton and Hoynes. I think you'll find this interesting. This is just what Walt Disney owns. This is a select U.S. holdings. Oh, my goodness. It's almost 15 years ago. But this will give you an idea of how... the conglomeration process works how it was working this 15 years ago. And then, of course, today it's even more pronounced. So the Walt Disney Company owns Dimension Videos, Hollywood Pictures, Miramax, Touchstone Pictures, Walt Disney Pictures, Walt Disney Feature Animation, and Buena Vista International. It owns ABC Radio, on 4,500 4, channels. It owns ESPN Radio, Radio Disney, and 44 radio stations from 17 FM stations to 27 AM stations in Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, Dallas, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. It owns ABC Television Network, 224 affiliates at the time. Ten television stations, including stations in Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles, New York, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. ABC Entertainment Television Group develops and produces programs for network TV. Bueno Vista Productions, Bueno Vista Television, Sabin Entertainment, a library of 6,500 episodes of children's programming. Walt Disney uh, Television, Walt Disney Television Animation. The Walt Disney Company also owns A&E. ABC Family, Biography Channel, The Disney Channel, Soap, Net, Toon Disney, E! Entertainment, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN Classic, and ESPN News, The History Channel, Lifetime, Lifetime Movie, and Style. The Walt Disney Company also owns part of the Anaheim Angels and the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. The San Jose. No, those are sharks. Where are the ducks from? Are they still in Anaheim? I don't know. I'm not a hockey guy. Anyway, 
the Disney company also owns Talk Magazine, Discover Magazine, Disney Magazine, ESPN, the magazine, and U.S. Weekly. It also owns Talk Miramax Books, Hyperion East, ABC Daytime Press, Disney Books, Jump at the Sun, Hyperion Music. It owns Lyric Music Records, Mammoth Records, Walt Disney Records, Hollywood Records. That's just the Walt Disney Company, folks. <laughs> so when you flip on that local TV channel, don't think for a second that anyone locally is making decisions in the editor's process that really has an effect on what you're being, you know, what you're seeing. If these companies are conservative or if they have a conservative bent, then then you think it's any surprise which the Disney company of course is notorious for. Is it any surprise that most of what you see on the History Channel is utter trash? Useless garbage? And how many more times can people watch another fucking episode about the Nazis? Right? I mean, this is a little crazy, right? I mean, how, I, it's no coincidence. Again, I mean, people have to understand this. Just think, oh, man, you know, people must really like Nazi shows. Well... Maybe the people who are in charge at Disney and who run the History Channel have a specific ideological bent because maybe they went to schools where their peers went to schools where you would learn that sort of an ideology and then grew up in a context that's conducive to those sort of ideologies. It's no different for AOL Time Warner. So as of 01, they owned CNN, CNN Airport Network, Cartoon Network, Cinemax, Comedy Central. So if you think it's any coincidence that on Comedy Central, when people are interviewed, they're going to interview CNN reporters. Or if you think it's any coincidence that AOL Time Warner just so happens to own HBO. So a show like Bill Maher will feature people from the sister companies of AOL Time Warner, such as CNN. Hmm. And 64 magazines. So a media company with this kind of power, this kind of reach, can influence tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people through their video production companies, through their film production through their book publishing, through their magazine holdings, through their television programs, their cable network TV programs, their music companies, the sports teams that they own, the multimedia or online companies that they own, radio channels. It's amazing. This is the the sort of a web that we find ourselves in. I think it would be who of people who are truly interested in learning more about the media and the way the media is set up to check out this book. The more I look at this book, the more I refer to it throughout the years, the more I, I remember just how useful and wonderful this book is. 
So anyway, media, society, industries, images, and audiences, David Cruteau and William Hoynes. Check it out. It's awesome. Absolutely awesome. Oh, goodness. So what else are we going to talk about today? Well, thank fucking Christ the Olympics are over. Oh, my God. God, I can't handle any more nationalism. I mean, folks, I know we talked about this on the last program, but we have to get rid of this nationalist shit. It is the worst. It brings out the worst in people. It's an archaic, ridiculous ideology. It's a violent ideology. It is, in my opinion, it's sort of the political version of racism. It's the political version of racism or sexism. And a pure version at that. Literally what you are telling people, if you are a nationalist, is that I value these people's lives more than these people, those people, whatever, because of arbitrary lines. That's what you're saying. I mean, do you know how absurd it was? I mean, I stayed away from social media as much as I could these last couple weeks because all sorts of people that I love and respect posting this nonsense about the Olympics. And of course, can I, can I appreciate athletic excellence? Undoubtedly. Let's... Be serious. It's, a, it's amazing to watch the world's greatest athletes compete at the highest level. No question about it. However, and this is a big however, with everything we know about professional sports, should we really, I mean, should we really be watching it? It's sort of like industrial beef production. It's like we know we know that this shit is terrible. We probably shouldn't do it. And I'm not as we've as I've talked about on previous programs as people know through my writings and so on. I'm not a lifestylist. Do I think people should make better choices? Of course. And I actually think it says something about you as a person whether or not you do. If you have, let me clarify this, the caveat is if you have the ability to do so. So you're out of your mind if you think I go to my friends, my poor, like extremely poor friends who have very little, and I say, oh, well, you know, why aren't you using organic this or why are you having a McDonald's cheeseburger? No, I mean, you know, it would be better if they didn't eat something like that, but that's not, you know, what can you do? Sometimes people are out of time, they're out of money, they don't know what to do. They're uneducated. They come from fucked up backgrounds. You know, maybe they weren't taught the right way. And it's a problem. But I'm not a lifestylist. It's not about, you know, what kind of choices you're made. What are you drinking? What are you eating? What are you wearing? Etc. No, it's what are you doing is the big question. Are you organizing, getting involved politically, socially, culturally, or are you sitting at home not doing those things? That's the biggest distinction. I don't even know where the hell we're going. Oh, the Olympics. 
So, <laughs> nationalism. We have to get rid of it. It's, and, of course, it's easier said than done. But we don't even have the conversation anymore. And that's what I find so boring about a lot of the political discourses and narratives that take place today. They just they seem so boring. It's so small. I mean, it's like the Bernie Sanders campaign. I mean, I, you know, the sole reason, the primary reason I encourage people to support that campaign was because, and I, I thought, and I still think, it was a great opportunity to meet like-minded people or somewhat like-minded people and hopefully organize with them in the future. But the people who are arguing that his politics were radical and that they were amazing and that they would take us in a drastically different direction, I mean, I mean, I want to have conversations with people who are interested in getting rid of nation states. I mean, those are the conversations I want to hear, be a part of. I want to be a part of conversations about how we're going to deal with massive extinctions. Because that's what the climate scientists tell us is on the horizon. It's already happening. I think it's over 200 species that become extinct every day. I want to talk about I want to talk to people about what a new economy would look like, what economies are, what they aren't. How would we structure a new society? Not that you're going to have all of the say so, not that you're going to be able to make all of those decisions, but you should have ideas. We should have ideas about what that looks like, what it would require. I think those things are interesting to me. You know, but the essentials, providing health care to people, living wage jobs, I guess on some level those are also interesting conversations, but they are not the type of conversations that I'm interested in having. I mean, there's plenty of people who want to argue, policy wonks and so forth, who want to argue over these kind of issues. We need people asking big questions, demanding big things, having big ideas. That's really what we should be encouraging. I think the and you know obviously teachers play a big role in this. School starting up last week and this week people, you know, summer vacation is over for the most part. It's definitely no longer summer here in the Chicagoland region. Last night it was 57 degrees at night, which was beautiful sleeping weather. But no longer summer, people are going back to school and teachers and education Education systems, institutions, both private and public, play a large and really disproportionate role in shaping young people's minds. Tremendous responsibility to be a teacher. Tremendous. And part of what's not tolerated in both the public education system but also a lot of the private education system as well because, of course, there you have financial and ideological interests that are contrary to, say, my ideological interests for the most part. But you're not going to find anyone or any teachers, maybe a teacher, <laughs> 
and maybe even in secondary education, I think with the, to paraphrase Howard Zinn, you'd essentially learn the same thing in grad school and in college than you do growing up. It's the same propaganda. It's just propaganda with footnotes. <laughs> and it's very true. It's essentially the same. You're viewing the world or being taught to view the world through the same ideological prism, you know, liberalism, capitalism, so on and so on. There's no discussion or real discussion about what is nationalism. Why do we call ourselves Americans? Isn't it time to move beyond nationalist interests? And you know what blows me away about the Olympics more than anything? For what? Two weeks, all of these nations, all of these people get together. Because someone said, oh, but Vince, you root for different fighters. You like the UFC. Or maybe you like a team like I would root, say, not a huge baseball fan. I don't watch it all the time, but I appreciate the sport. Played it a lot as a child. I actually get into, we could talk about sports too because this is part of the conversation. But say you're going to root for a team, you know. White Sox versus the Cubs, I'd have to go with the Sox because it's a South Side team. I was born on the South Side. Lived on the South Side as a child. So, okay, I would go with that team. But it's fun. It's, you know, I, these soccer fans and, well, of course, fans in the United States as well, but soccer fans in Europe beating each other up, stabbing each other over sports games. I mean, this is absurd. <laughs> this is crazy. This is, you know, barbaric behavior. I don't want anything to do with that. And it's not like when, well, see, that's interesting too. I was going to say it's not like when the Sox and Cubs aren't playing each other that they're, you know, people are, those two sides, people on the north side and south side are killing each other. But in some ways there are some very real world tensions there as well. You have big tension between people on the south side who are more affluent and people and white and people on the south side who are black and brown, or more so, and um, very poor. So there's tension there, but not as absurd as the Olympics, where you have countries that are literally bombing each other. It's countries that are bombing each other. Countries that are refused to trade with each other. Countries that are taking advantage of each other, or countries and well so you know what i'm saying and yet they play these games it's supposed to be this oh this moment of peace everyone's coming together it's amazing and in the meantime we know of course because of the great reporting from people like dave zyron who's virtually never wrong when it comes to sports and politics lay bare the reality of what the olympics are hyper-militarization of local police forces, the displacement of tens of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in some cases over time, at least tens of thousands and the conservative estimates over 100,000 people. All of the prostitution and human trafficking that goes into the Olympics coming to town so all of the worst industries, gambling, drugs, so on, 
skyrocket when people come to town for the Olympics. And how many people are privileged enough to go to town for the Olympics? Let's also be real here. The Olympics are not for working class people. So that's another thing that I think is interesting. When working class people want to, and poor people want to identify with institutions that don't give a fuck about them, like America, for example. This is funny. When you have poor people, you know, flying the flag, working class people flying the flag in America this and America that. That's the same shit that's getting you killed. That same dumbass mentality is the dumbass mentality that leads us to all these useless wars. Killing all these innocent people. Wasting all of this treasure. Destroying the environment. It's the same mentality. It's the same goofy worldview, and the contradictions are endless. I mean, what? So, on the one hand, you know that no one in the U.S. government cares about you. You know that the U.S. military is fighting wars for oil companies and for multinational corporations, for geopolitical interests, and yet you still fly that flag. You know that the U.S. Congress has let your jobs get shipped overseas. They don't give a shit about you. Don't give a shit about your kids. Don't give a shit about your retirement. They don't care about where you live. They don't care about the environment that you live in. They don't care if they pour lead and other toxic chemicals in it and poison your kids. And yet you're still flying that flag. And you know this is disproportionately, of course, in white communities. This is the reality. The working class, poor white people clinging to this idea of America being a special place. I think some of that's going away. Fortunately, the 2016 presidential election, as much as it's been, oh, the bane of much of our existence, it has also been somewhat useful. I mean, I, I'm personally burnt out with it. I'm not going to talk about or say anything. I mean, I'm not saying a word about the two people who are running for U.S. president. I won't even mention their names. Actually, it might be a promise that I make you here today. What is it? August, did I say 22nd? I promise you today, August 22nd, that I will no longer say their names. You know who I'm talking about. The Democratic nominee and the Republican nominee for president of this insane nation and empire. <laughs> I'm not going to say their names from here on out till election night. There's no reason for it. I just refuse to be a part of it. It's already been a year. It's been well over a year. It's been 14, 15 months of listening to this craziness, and I've had enough. So, no reason to mention them. And we need to talk about bigger issues anyway. A discussion, an ongoing discussion. A critique. A discussion of alternatives to nationalism is so much more useful than anything we can talk about with regard to the presidential campaign. And there's a lot we could talk about with regard to nationalism. Where did it come from? Well, it's a human-made idea. That's the number one thing people need to remember. And I say that, and it sounds elementary to some people, but I think people have to remember that a lot of people in our society take things for granted. They assume that a lot of these institutions, or they don't think about it, they subconsciously assume that a lot of these institutions are here naturally, or that they would just exist. 
or that people didn't create them or that it wasn't individuals who sat around and talked about these ideas and then decided to implement these ideas. But those sort of conversations have to be encouraged. And the media isn't going to encourage people to have a serious conversation about nationalism. And most of the education systems in the United States, including public education, because this is another topic, again, where people on the left, I think, need to get more serious. Progressives need to get more serious about the way they approach this issue. Because the knee-jerk reaction to private schools and charters and so on, which for the most part, not all of them, let's remember, but for the most part is a scam. We know that. We know the hedge fund managers are involved, so on and so forth. We get it. We get all that. On the other hand, public schools, the way they're set up, the way they function, what they produce is not much better. And the barometers we use to judge that are fully within the spectrum of the the sort of this capitalist structure that we live in, this empire that we live in. So who learned more, who had better grades, who got better test scores? Oh, public schools are actually better than charter schools. You got better test scores at public schools. In some cases, during some sud in some studies, we're just using this as an example. Well, what does that what does that exactly mean? Uh, maybe getting off topic, but the point is, public schools they don't teach kids shit either. I went to one of the best public schools from middle school through high school. In the state of Indiana, one of the be- well, maybe that's a low bar. <laughs> so maybe we, oh goodness, no. Well, you know, it's the the truth of the matter is there's actually decent school system uh, for those who can afford it, and of course the university system isn't bad in uh, Indiana either. But well, here I am defending the Hoosier state. Usually, I'm utterly critical of what the hell's going on here, but nonetheless. Yeah, I went to one of the better public schools in the state that I live in for high school, and I left the high school not learning a damn thing. It's easy to skate by. And some might argue, oh, well, that's your own fault. You could have learned. I probably could have learned more. There's no question I could have learned more. But I wasn't the only one who felt like sitting in a I mean, just that day-to-day grind, I hated it then. I hated it. Could not stand school. Yes, the the beloved public school that so many progressives and leftists just throw out there every time somebody has something to say about how screwed up the school system is because it is screwed up. Yeah, you do themselves no favors. The teachers union, all of these groups do themselves no favors by not acknowledging the legitimate critiques of the institutions that they represent. It's like the Democrats refuse to acknowledge many of the critiques Bernie Sanders supporters and other supporters on the left have been making of the Democrats for years. And as a result, they're 
you know, not as successful as they could be, which maybe isn't the worst thing, but you get what I'm saying. It's the same with public schools. The problem isn't pay and teachers and all this nonsense. It's what are you actually teaching these kids? Okay, mathematics, English, language. Those are easy, objective subjects to teach. I guess there's some subjective interpretation of grammar. There's subjective interpretation of numbers and the ways in which you would teach mathematics. But overall, it's an objective discipline. Not too many, too much differences among those who teach those subjects. But when it comes to world history, when it comes to U.S. history, or what's I think often called social studies in high school, when it comes to U.S. government classes, when it comes to U.S. econ classes, the propaganda system <laughs> is fully intact. You know, I spoke with a friend who teaches high school. He teaches U.S. government and economics. And the recommended textbooks are crazy. I mean, they are some... They're, generally speaking, you're talking Keynesian economics. But the only alternative they give to Keynesian economics really is sort of the Ayn Randian hyper neoliberal or I don't know what the hell you would even call, you know, von Hayek and Mises and Milton Friedman, of course, we know is the, the, the neoliberal, but these are the only other alternatives people get. So this is what these kids are learning in a public school. They're learning to be little capitalists. They're learning to be socially, okay, maybe socially liberal. Depends, well, again, depends where you're at. So in some cases, they're not, not only are they being taught reactionary economic disciplines and ideologies, they're not even learning to be socially liberal. That's what the public school system is producing. Nothing special, nothing interesting. In most cases. And that's, again, not necessarily the fault of individual teachers as much as it's the fault of the system itself and the institutions that prop up the public, public education system. So, of course, the point is that everyone should have access to education. No doubt about it. Everyone in this world should have access to world-class education, and it's possible. Again, maybe this is simplistic, maybe it's a terrible comparison, but I still maintain that if we can send people to outer space, then we can provide people with health care and decent education and shelter. No one should be homeless. No one should be uneducated. No one should be unhealthy and unable to see a doctor. That's pretty simple philosophy it's not the entirety of how I view the world but in the short term no one can argue with me differently on those on those subjects so when it comes to education of course people should have access 
at all levels to world-class education. That's not, maybe that's the first step. The second step, of course, is what are they going to learn? And I would argue that if we're going to deal with the threats that we face today, whether that be, when I say we, I mean humanity faces today, whether that be nuclear warfare, terrorism, nation-state wars, of course the biggest one in my opinion, climate change, ecological collapse. There is simply no way to deal with these issues under the current structure of the nation-state. These are global issues. So while our entertainment industries and communications industries have gone global, our morals, our ethics, our worldviews have not. And that's something that we have to work on. It's essential. And the first step to working on that, the first step toward building an international solidarity, building international institutions that would be capable or might be capable of dealing with these crises that we face, particularly ecological crises, absolutely requires a critique and an eventual dismantling of what we now consider the nation state and nationalism. Climate change doesn't care if you're Chinese or American or Mexican or Venezuelan. Voluntary, involuntary. We don't know the contrast organically. 